Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, my name is Peter Mason, and this is your Power by COVID-19 and its impact on acute coronary syndromes. COVID-19 has had a profound impact on the care of all patients, but especially those with cardiac disease. We know that patients with uh, cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease risk factors are at a particularly high risk of developing COVID-related morbidity and mortality. Interestingly and unexpectedly, uh, during the COVID surge in the U.S. and really throughout the globe, we've seen a dramatic drop in acute coronary syndrome presentations to the hospital and particularly uh, those with ST elevation myocardial infarction. This phenomenon may actually reflect a bigger systemic problem and unintended consequences of the surge response and sheltering as patients have avoided emergency departments and hospitals for their non-COVID related conditions. Hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast on the management of patients with acute coronary syndromes during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacqueline Tanis-Holland, and I'm an interventional cardiologist working at Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital in New York City. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Peter Mason, who is also an interventional cardiologist and associate professor of medicine and director of the cardiac cath laboratory at Friedhart and Medical College of Wisconsin. Peter, I understand your hospital had a very systematic approach to preparing for this pandemic. Can you tell me the measures you took in the cath lab to prepare for this surge? Yeah, Jacqueline, um, in Milwaukee and the Frederick Medical College of Wisconsin in particular, our surge planning uh, began in early March and really greatly benefited from the experience and lessons learned from institutions and colleagues at COVID hotspots around the globe. Uh, As we were not really fully affected by the virus in our community, we dedicated our initial efforts to surge planning and the definition uh, of best practices within this really uncertain time. Some of the critical things we did uh, within the cath lab and the management of of ACS is to identify and procure the necessary personal protection equipment, or PPE, develop uh, lab uh, policies and procedures for the management of patients with COVID-19 infection, and those considered persons under investigation or PUI. Uh, We changed our staff models to encourage social distancing and safety, uh, and we canceled elective cases to help promote social distancing and ensure patient and staff safety, as well as to conserve uh, resources, both PPE and human, for surge uh, response. And for cardiac emergencies, we identified a dedicated COVID room and COVID supply cart We worked with our EMS and ED colleagues to help identify at-risk and infected patients um, and develop guidelines for patient and staff safety. We had COVID working groups within our division and heart vascular service line, which met regularly to discuss key information and developments, generate consensus on policies and procedures, and we helped disseminate information as well as operationalize changes uh, in the management of ACS uh, and other uh, cardiac-related conditions. For ACS in particular, we stress to our colleagues the importance of recognizing COVID-related complications, as well as uh, recognizing the fact that many COVID uh, patients hospitalized would have potentially incidental rises in their cardiac biomarkers. We educated our colleagues about prevalence and potential problem and and stressed the importance of of fighting the infection first and treating only those 
um, with true ischemic syndromes or complications. Although contingency plans were developed for more drastic measures uh, involving things such as lytics for STEMI, we did not formally change any of our protocols for ACS patient management. Um, now, approximately six to eight weeks later, our regional surge has passed us and it was not overwhelming, and we're beginning to reopen our system for elective outpatient cardiac services. Jacqueline, I know New York has has been one of the hardest hit cities in the entire world. What were your experiences in treating patients with ACS? Before the big surge, Mount Sinai, Morningside, and other hospitals throughout the system sat down and really created policies, internal policies, for how we would manage our patients with STEMI and STEMI during this time. And much like the policy created by Sky and the ACC, we agreed that we would take all patients with STEMI to the cath lab when appropriate, and to select only really moderate to high-risk patients with non-STEMI for cath lab management. Shortly after this meeting, though, there was a flood of patients to our ER. Our cath lab staff, our fellows, our nurse practitioners, our attendings, and our medical assistants were all sent and deployed to all other parts of the hospital. And essentially, our cath lab was literally closed with the exception of emergencies for the last six weeks. When reviewing our troponin data, we did find that almost 90% of our patients on admission had troponin testing done. And among those that had troponin testing done, about one-third of them had elevated troponins. Very few of our patients had levels greater than one. Um, And in almost all of these cases where we noted elevated troponins, we found that really nobody had, very few had any accompanying clinical syndrome to suggest an ACS. And I think at the current time, we'd all agree that the troponin positives we are seeing likely reflect myriad etiologies, including myocardial injury from either myocarditis or an unrecognized PE or some other form of a myocardial injury. Um, And most of our patients are not really having a clinical syndrome, so it's less often a result of a type 1 or a type 2 infarction. In our hospital, only a small percentage of the troponin elevations were modest in size, and this was usually seen in our older patients or patients with underlying risk factors. And because we really didn't know the etiology for those patients with elevated troponins, particularly the modest ones, if there were no other underlying uh, contraindications, we treated them with standard guideline-directed medical therapy. But a lot of our patients had contraindications and couldn't necessarily get one type of therapy. Um, For the rest of the patients, for, for all of them, we really... After optimization of their care and they were sent home, really really nobody went to the cath lab. Only one of our patients with ACS went to the cath labs. Um, Over the next couple of weeks, now that these patients, those patients who have recovered and are doing well and our labs are starting to open up again, we're hoping to bring some of these patients back for a further evaluation, particularly the ones who had a true clinical scenario of um, NSTEMI. With respect to our STEMIs, we saw a tremendous reduction in the overall cases, including the STEMI activations. And quite frankly, in the last six weeks, we haven't seen a single STEMI that actually underwent primary PCI. The few activations we did have were either false positive patients or patients who were terminally ill and really not an appropriate candidate for our lab. So that's why we never took anybody to the lab. But when you look at the data from Sri Paul Bangalore and colleagues at NYU, you see that about half of patients with COVID and ST elevations on EKG um, were really STEMI mimics. And they define STEMI mimics as people with uh, patients with either non-obstructive disease or normal ejection fraction with no underlying symptoms. So it seems that we're seeing in general that the overwhelming, a large proportion of patients with STEMI on EKG are not actually STEMI at all. 
What about you, Peter? What's your sense of the STEMI volume? Yeah, similar to your experience, we definitely saw a reduction in, in, in overall STEMI volume. And I think this was coincident with the declaration of the na- national state of emergency on March 16th and the Wisconsin Safer at Home order uh, on March 23rd. That's when we really began to see a drop in ACS volumes and STEMI activations at our institution. This, too, was uh, observed throughout the nation and globe. Uh, in a recent online ACC poll published earlier this week, um, over 95% of the 500 respondents reported a decre- decrease in STEMI volume at their institution, with 56% reporting a greater than 50% decline. And then over the last two to three uh, weeks, we've seen several publications that have helped validate this as a, a true global phenomenon. From Spain, uh, Rodriguez and colleagues reported a, a pooled analysis of their 71 hospital STEMI care network where they found that there was a 40% reduction in primary PCI and STEMI and a 50% reduction in ACS volumes. From Austria, uh, Dr. Metzler and colleagues reported a pool analysis of 17 public PCI centers and reported uh, that between the first and fourth week of March, there was a 24 and 49% relative risk reduction or relative reduction, sorry, in STEMI and NSTEMI volumes respectively. Compared to historical trends, this represented a per-month difference between observed and expected cases of approximately uh, 275 cases. And finally, from the U.S., uh, pooled uh, results from a nine-high-volume PCI center study reported a 38% reduction in STEMI activations during the month of March compared to the preceding two-month period. Interestingly and anecdotally, uh, over the last several weeks, uh, we've seen a rise in ACS volume and STEMI activations. Uh, compared to the preceding four or five weeks. Jacqueline, I know there are a number of concerns and theories about the observed drop in STEMI and ACS volume. What is your understanding and opinion about this? So, Peter, there are two competing ideas for the reduction in STEMI numbers, and some people have postulated that there may be biologically fewer MIs because people there's a reduction in the number of people experiencing plaque rupture. In support of this, there is certainly more sheltering and family support going on now. Work hours are generally fewer, people are not commuting, and people may be working less in general. Additionally, since people are not eating out and perhaps they're sleeping more, they may actually be following a healthier lifestyle. On the other hand, studies have shown that in the early days of 9-11, after 9-11, the prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder was 10 to 15%, which is much higher than we see during ordinary times. And in keeping with this, during these stressful times uh, during 9-11, they saw a 25% increase in AMI volume in New York City uh, during those times. And so I would suppose that in the current scenario, one would expect a similar consequences. Um, it's certainly, um, in my opinion, it's certainly a stressful time. People are more fearful about their health, the health of their loved ones. They have a lot of stress about work and about the economy. And additionally, the data from the flu epidemic has shown, if anything, there's a six-fold higher number of infarctions during this time. And therefore, I would expect that um, this viral syndrome, which is much more severe, would probably present with similar findings. And finally, let's face the facts. In New York City, at least, a lot of our parks are closed, our beaches are closed, our gyms are closed, and people are actually not following a healthy lifestyle, as opposed to the idea of sheltering at home and having a better lifestyle. So in the end, while I think it is possible that there are biologically fewer events, I think it is more likely that people are just not coming to the hospital. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I, I agree that the, 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 the most likely explanation is, is uh, that people are staying at home. And, and frankly, this is the, the most concerning explanation. Um, 
patients are frankly scared to even leave their home, uh, let alone to seek medical uh, care in, in an emergency department or a hospital. I think certain patients may be confused about their symptoms and whether their shortness of breath, fatigue, or chest pain is caused by an infection or a cardiac process. And then anecdotally, I know that some patients have even said that they recognize that their symptoms were cardiac, but they self-sacrificed. They stayed at home assuming that their symptoms would get better or that their predicament was not uh, did not warrant attention compared to those that were suffering from COVID. Um, regardless, I think it's becoming clear that the global COVID pandemic and social distancing has had a huge impact on non-infection related uh, medical care and outcomes. Uh, recent CDC data and an article in the New York Times indicated that there was a very large mortality burden that exceeds the COVID uh, statistics as well as the historical trends. It's hypothesized that this gap uh, is likely explained by an underreporting or under-testing of COVID-related deaths, as well as the unintended consequences that sheltering may have had on patients' access to medical care for non-COVID-related conditions. Again, from uh, I discussed earlier, Dr. Metzler and colleagues from Austria, um, but they estimated that about 270 people may have stayed home with their heart attack during the month of March. And then if they assumed a 40% mortality for the medical management of STEMI, that this could result in a, a theoretical death toll of about 110 patients due to undertreatment. Interestingly, this number, uh, 110, actually exceeded the cumulative number of COVID-related deaths in Austria on March 29th, which was 97. Um, you know, yet to be determined more longer-term uh, implications uh, may even be equally or greater concerning, and that's the potential for us to see a surge of cardiac patients with sequelae of untreated uh, cardiac emergencies or, or acute phenomenon or even undertreated chronic cardiac disease. We might see an influx of patients with severe cardiomyopathy and cardiogenic shock, ventricular arrhythmias from their untreated MIs, as well as me mechanical complications from AMIs, such as VSDs, free wall ruptures, ischemic MR, and ventricular aneurysms. Yes, and Peter, we are seeing a little evidence of this right now in New York City. Um, when we look at the calls to 911 for cardiac arrest, um, and we look at that from last year at this time, there were 69 calls on average a day for cardiac arrests in New York City to 911. And of these, about 39% of those patients had died uh, uh, either in the hospital or on arrival. During the month of March to April this past month, there were an average of 195 calls to 911 for cardiac arrest during these times, which is practically three times as high as what they saw in the past year. Um, and of these, two-thirds of the patients had died. So while I realize it is hard to tease out cardiac arrests from COVID versus those arrests that occurred from an, an, an AMI or a heart failure or arrhythmias, you'd have to think that at least some of this increase is attributed to the cardiac etiologies such as arrhythmias or maybe even mechanical complications of an infarct because of untreated infarcts. I want to thank you, Peter, for this great discussion. And to sum it all up, I have a few important points that I really think we need to emphasize. During any public emergency or pandemic, hospitals need to prepare well in advance and create protocols and policies on how best to manage patients, ensure adequate staffing, and ensure adequate supplies. Managing ACS during these times has really been a bit tricky as we are certainly seeing fewer ST elevations infarctions um, and ST elevations infarctions for other reasons beyond infarction, beyond um, an acute MI. And we definitely see troponin elevations that may be 
often related to myocardial injury and not a true MI. And so now it's more important than ever that we rely on our good clinical judgment when deciding on how best to treat these scenarios. Despite our cath labs being prepared throughout the country, we instead have seen an overall reduction in the number of true cases of ACS. And this unfortunately is likely related to a reduction in the number of patients who call for help. And this needs to change. Organizations such as AHA must emphasize to the public that time is muscle. If someone thinks they're having a heart attack, they need to call 911. EMS agencies and hospitals have really taken great uh, precautions to ensure the safety of our patients. We are ready for you and we are going to make your stay here safe. So please do not be afraid to call 911 and come to the hospital. Yeah, thank you, Jacqueline. I, I really uh, echo your comments and, and state that it's really our imperative that as we see the decline in COVID-related infections and mortality, that we stress to the American public the importance of accessing medical care for both acute and chronic heart conditions. But we too, uh, as you stated, have to make sure that we earn the trust of the public and making our healthcare system safe. Uh, thanks again. This has been a great discussion. For the audience out there, please return online to AHA Professional Heart Daily for additional podcasts planned for this series, which include COVID-19 and stroke, diabetics, pulmonary hypertension, and other concurrent cardiovascular diseases during this disruptive time in healthcare delivery. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.